Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Courtney, thanks for reading. So I want to show you a picture here. This is this is Joan Boucher. And Joan Boucher is a is a widow who died on this day in 1550. Okay? And uh, she was she died by by being burned at the stake. And I have a question for you. All right, was Joan Boucher burned at the stake for A, witchcraft, B, for killing her husband, C, for refusing to pay tax to the king, or D, for believing that the bread and the wine in communion are symbols of Jesus' body, not the actual body and blood of Jesus? How many of you think it's A, witchcraft? How many of you think she was burned at the stake for B, killing her husband, C, refusing to pay tax and d believing that the body that the bread and the wine are symbols of Jesus body and blood not the actual body and blood oh wow everybody says d well you're right that was that's the reason on this day in 1550 Joan Boucher was burned at the stake for saying for believing that what she had been taught uh, about the the bread and the cup used in communion that these are not the actual body and blood of Jesus but they are their symbols and uh, and it might seem to you that like this is an overreaction, you know, to a, to that sort of a, of a thought or, or or belief, but it's not if you believe like Roman Catholics do that the bread and the wine that are used in communion are the actual body and blood of Jesus, like that when the priest stands over the the cup and the wafers and he says his prayer and he does his thing, then the the bread and the wine are what's called the the word is transubstantiated. And they become the literal body and blood of Christ. And because this thing, it, and so this thing becomes holy. Now, I, I grew up in that tradition. Many of you would know. Like, so when I was in grade two, I was, I was one of 30 kids who did the sacrament of our first Holy Communion. And the training for it took weeks. Because again, this thing is holy. And that's why uh, a few hundred years ago, back in, in 1604, the Pope at the time, he gave the priest some instruction about what to do if there is a communion fail. Like, what do you do, for example, if, the, if there's an accident with the bread? So he says, if a consecrated wafer be accidentally lost, for instance, if, if it be blown away by the wind, or if it disappear by a miracle, or if it be run away with by a mouse or a, any other animal, and the bread cannot be recovered, then let another wafer be consecrated and let the animal be killed, if possible, and burned and let the ashes be cast into the sacristy or beneath the altar. Now, a sacristy is a little sink uh, in, this, in the back of a Catholic church that drains into the ground and not into the sewers. I can tell you about that later. But another question that the Pope tried to answer is like, what do we do if before we, like after we consecrate the, the wine and before we can serve it to the people, a spider falls into the wine. What do we do? So he said, the answer is, is, it's quite simple, actually. If a fly or a spider or any other substance should fall into the chalice, which is the special cup, after consecration, let him take out the fly or spider, wash it with wine, and when mass is over, let him burn the animal and cast the wine into the sacristy. But if he feel no nausea and fear no danger, let him swallow the blood, fly, and all. So I don't know about you, but um, it seems to me that might be an example of over-spiritualizing the meaning of the Lord's Supper. 
Okay, like if we're at the point of talking about drinking the spider wine or burning animals that touch the bread, we, we might be in danger of over-spiritualizing the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Uh, on the other hand, I actually don't think that that's the danger that we are in uh, as, as a culture. As, as evangelicals, I think we, if anything, we're in, the, in danger of under-spiritualizing it. And I think that we see that in some ways in the form that our communion practices take, where in, in lots of ch- churches, communion is just a tiny little crack or a tiny little, tiny little cube of bread. Uh, it's, a, it's a tiny little disposable plastic cup in order to make cleanup in, uh, more easy. Um, we see it in the frequency of communion, because in lots of evangelical circles, the communion is something that we do maybe quarterly, maybe monthly, because, because why not? Like, what do, we, what do we lose if we don't do it more often? Uh, I think we see it in the format that our communion takes, because uh, it, it actually takes quite a bit of time when you think about it to pass around trays of bread and trays of juice. And it takes time for an entire congregation to line up in one line. And so church leaders have figured out that if you put a station at each corner of the room, you can actually move people through in you know, a quarter of the time. And you need that time because you need it for the, you know, the actual evangelical sacraments, which are songs and sermons. But it, but it seems to me the, the danger that we are in, that we culturally are, are, are in, is the same danger that the Corinthians face where, where we join them today, which is the danger of under-spiritualizing the Lord's Supper. And, and, and I actually think it's important to, to name that and say that under-spiritualizing communion isn't better than over-spiritualizing, okay? Both are a problem. Now, fun fact, this passage today that we're dealing with in in 1 Corinthians 11, dealing with the the Lord's Supper, this is why we called this series Table Manners. Because the Corinthians are making making a lot of mistakes. Paul has some really hard and serious things to say to them. And I think if we listen in, we uh, we can allow Paul to remind us of why we do communion. And so there's, there's really, there's only three parts to what I want to, where I want to go today. I want to talk about Paul's instruction. I want to talk about four reasons uh, why, like four things that happen in communion, four things that are happening in the Lord's Supper. And then I want to apply that by answering a really specific question about the role of kids in communion. Like who is welcome and specifically talking about kids. All right. So, so let's jump in. We're going to talk first of all about the, the instruction. And um, we see it at the end of the passage, actually. Now, it's, it might be helpful to know that as far as historians can tell, the Corinthian church at this time is made up of a number of, of house churches. And these homes belong probably to wealthy families uh, who open up their home because they're, they're the only ones in town who have the space for this many people. And in these particular homes, archaeologists have learned that there's typically a, like a small dining room for VIPs. And then there is a larger sort of common area or courtyard for everybody else for these community events and stuff. And so Paul's instruction to the church includes two things. First of all, when you come together to eat, verse 33, I want you to welcome one another. Okay, welcome one another. Like we're not playing politics. We're not playing favorites. We're not going to use the VIP room and put you know, the, the less popular people like at the kitty table, everybody's together. Everybody here is just as welcome as everybody else. Okay. So I want you to welcome one another. And the other thing he says is in verse 34, if anyone is hungry, he should eat at home. And it's like, 
like, yo, this isn't the Mandarin, okay? You didn't come here. We don't do this so that you can pig out and fill your belly. Like, especially you wealthy people, you have a house. You have food of your own. You have servants. And so eat at home so that you're not starving when you, it's time to come together for the Lord's Supper, okay? Eat at home. And so um, it, it seems like Paul's correction or, or, or Paul's instruction is, you guys have way under-spiritualized the Lord's Supper, and this thing matters way more than you realize. So I want you to get it right in these ways. And his fix, his solution is, I want you to welcome one another. I want everybody, everyone is to be welcomed and everyone is to be fed. And it seems to me what Paul's doing there is, is in these instructions, what Paul's saying about communion is, is that, uh, that in the Lord's Supper, we put the gospel on display. Like we reenact the gospel, we present the gospel. It becomes something that we can see with our eyes. It's something that we can that we can smell. We can smell the bread. We can smell the juice. We can taste it on our tongues. We can hold it in our hands, and we can we can experience it. We can share it as we embrace and as we participate in this thing with one another in with our spiritual family. And 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 so it becomes this this almost dramatic reenactment or, or representation of the cross. And, and that's what Paul wants for them, to, to have a communion practice that puts the gospel on display. And there's four reasons why. Okay. So the second part here is I want to just share four, four reasons why uh, we need the, why we need the Lord's Supper. Four reasons why this thing matters. The first is because it's a reunion. All right. It's, it's a reunion. So this, this is about people. It's about relationships. Verse 17 Paul says, in giving this instruction, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. Indeed, it's necessary that there be factions among you so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. I just want to pause here and just imagine how awkward these meals are, okay? Because you remember there was a guy in chapter five who's sleeping with his mom or his stepmom. And the church is divided because some of them are defending him and some people think he should be kicked out. And in chapter six, we saw that there are people who are suing one another. There's a, like, there are these raging lawsuits that are dividing the church. There are, there's a division over who is a fan of Paul and who's a fan of Apollos. And, and then a few chapters ago, we saw there's, there's a group of people who, as soon as this service is done, they head up the mountain to the temple of Aphrodite in order to worship Jesus or in order to worship Venus there. And so there's all these tensions and divisions among the Corinthians. And, and a lot of these people just can't stand to be together. And Paul's like, I don't praise you for this. Like that's the opposite of what this thing is supposed to be. This is supposed to be a reunion. Okay. Like no matter what your failures, no matter what your background is, no matter what you've done or what has happened to you over the last week, this is our reunion. No matter, no matter what like faith family you're in, no matter what huddle you're in, we meet at this table. It's a reunion. Okay? No matter if you're a mature Christian or a new believer, no matter what our differences are, this is our weekly family reunion. That's what this is about. It's a reunion. And the table is also a rebuke. So another thing that's supposed to happen at the table is, is a rebuke. So Imagine for a second if the Apostle Paul said to our church, yo, I don't know what you think you're doing. I don't know what you think you are, but you're, this is not a church. 
And what you're doing here is not the Lord's Supper. Like, it's not the Lord's Supper. I don't know what you think you're doing. He says in verse 20, When you come together, then, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. One person's hungry, while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. We get a really good glimpse of what's going on in this context here. There are some people who go home hungry, who need the food. There's people who are, going, who are going home hungry at the end of the meal because there's a few of the people who pigged out. And the wine, didn't even it seems, didn't even make it around the table before some of the people at the table decided to like drink far more than their share and treat it like this is an open bar at a wedding. And, and, and that's not okay. And so Paul, they're, they're being rebuked. And what's interesting here, though, is they're not, like, kicked out. Paul doesn't reject these people and remove them from the congregation. They're corrected. They're not removed. They're rebuked. And he would rather that they learn from what they've done and, and, and show them the ways that they're being worldly and selfish and greedy so that he can invite them to repent. And I think that that's another important thing that happens at the table. We are rebuked. Okay, we come with our our sinful attitudes and our selfishness and our pride and our impatience and materialism. And at the table, we have a moment to pause and reflect and we are corrected. We are rebuked for for these attitudes. So so the communion is a rebuke. It's also a remembrance. It's a remembrance. Here in this part of the passage, Paul takes them all the way back to the Lord, the Last Supper where Jesus was having his final meal with the disciples. And so in verse 23, Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. And this, and this is familiar. We, we go through this each time we take communion. But in verse 23, Paul says, On the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul is taking those words and he's saying, when, you know, when Jesus told the disciples to do this in remembrance of me, he was talking to us too. Like that's for us as well. Now, I want I don't know if you noticed this, but in verse 26, Paul adds a little something. To, to Jesus, uh, to, to the institution of, the, of the, the Lord's Supper here. Verse 26, Paul says, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, those are Paul's words, that we proclaim the Lord's death un- until he comes. That's, that's not, those aren't Jesus' words, those are Paul's words. But Jesus did say something similar to that in the Last Supper. So what what Jesus actually said is, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 29, what Jesus said at the Last Supper was, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Like, someday I will drink this with you again, but not for some time. Um, and, and, and so, in a sense, what's going on is in the, the Lord's Supper, we look back, you know, the ripped bread reminds us of how Jesus' body was just wrecked. The, the poured out cup reminds us of how Jesus' blood was shed on the cross. But, the, but communion doesn't only look backwards. 
Because apparently, according to Paul and according to Jesus, communion also looks forward and reminds us that Jesus is coming back. Like he's coming back and we're going to get to enjoy this feast with him. And communion seems to be a reminder of that. It's like, it's a rehearsal. It's, a, it's like a practice of this thing that's going to happen in the future. And so, so I love this, this, uh, this quote from N.T. Wright. He says, the Eucharist uh, is a moment in Christian living when the future comes to meet us in the present. The Eucharist is a moment in Christian living when the future comes to meet us in the present. And it, you know, it seems to me, I, I wonder if, if in some ways we've overcomplicated the meaning of the Lord's Supper, but it's, I, I actually, I promise you that kids can get this. Like you, because you, you and I, we rem, I hope you remember what it was like to play, right? You remember being a kid and, and playing like, do you remember playing house? Remember, remember playing dress up? You know, where you, you pretend to be something else. Like you pretend to be in another story. And maybe you're a mom or a dad or you're the baby or you're the big brother or big sister or something like that. Or some of you remember like, you like playing with action figures, like getting down on the floor and creating a story and having them fight and figure out problems and stuff. In all of these ways, in playing, we pretend. You know, we, we, uh, we, spend, we're, we live in our imaginations and we are taken to another place and another uh, time and another story that's different and better than the one that we're in. And it seems like Paul and, and Christ are saying communion is like that. It's play. It's practice. It's, it's, a, it's a rehearsing of a story uh, that we that we enjoy here and now until we can actually feast with Christ in his kingdom until that comes what we have is the ability to remember to rehearse and to to play uh, at communion it's like we we get to play kingdom together that's what communion is is for it's a remembrance and i think the last the reason we need we need the lord's supper is for a reorientation it's it's a reorientation um, and I, and I, I use that word reorientation in, uh, carefully, not, not talking about re-education here. This isn't about getting new facts. This is about having Jesus at the center, uh, in the place around which all the rest of our lives makes sense. And it seems to me that's the problem in Corinth in this time. It's, it's a problem of, uh, it's, it's a problem of seeing. So like in, in, uh, verse 28, the problem, it seems to be that they can't see themselves properly. Paul says, let a person examine himself, uh, verse 31, because, if, you know, if we were properly judging ourselves, we would be fine. You know, like we wouldn't become under judgment. So, so one part of the problem is that they just, they don't see themselves properly. They don't see themselves truly and accurately. The other part of the problem, though, is that they can't see the Lord. They can't see the Lord in this. And so verse 29, Paul says, uh, they, whoever eats and drinks uh, without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So they, uh, they're unable to recognize the body. They're, they're doing this thing and they're not, they don't see that this is about Jesus. They don't see that this is his supper, not theirs. This is about Christ. They fail to recognize him in this thing. They can't see him there. And because they can't see Christ in the supper, because they can't see themselves accurately in the supper, they're being disciplined for it. Verse 32, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned by the world. Now, 
yeah, that's hard to understand. That doesn't that doesn't sit well in for a, a lot of us. But um, it seems like God is in some ways maybe like kind of thinning out the herd, you know. But it's not a punishment; it's discipline. Paul calls it discipline. It's it's like training, and and punishment and and discipline are not the same thing. Punishment serves the punisher, the one doing the punishing, but but discipline serves the one who is being disciplined by it. And through this discipline, God wants, he seems to want the Corinthians to kind of come back to Christ at the center, like Christ as their first love in the, in the very center of life with all of everything else re- sort of revolving and oriented around him. So that's why I call this a reorientation, okay? Because we come from all kinds of different backgrounds and having had all kinds of different weeks and we come lost and, and blind and unable to see, and we are off balance. Everything is upside down right now, obviously, right? And at the table, we learn to see again. We see Jesus at the center of life, and, and we become realigned. And, and it's like we see Christ at, this, at, like at the center of the solar system. He's like the sun at the center around which all of our little planets revolve. So it's a reorientation. It's a reorientation. And, and, and that reorientation, when, when we are reoriented like this, that seems to me, that is the feeling of being alive in Christ. That's the feeling of being alive in Christ. That's why I, I, I love this quote from James K.A. Smith. Uh, he says, communion is tangible Christology. It's sights and smells. It's rhythms and movements are the sort of thing that seep into our imaginations and become second nature. Just as a song makes words stick in our memory, so the sights and smells and rhythms of the Eucharist seem to make the story of Christ both come alive and wriggle into our imaginations in a way that it wouldn't otherwise. So I hope you see these are four big reasons why we need the Lord's Supper. The four big things that happen in the Lord's Supper. And if these four things are happening, then I think the specifics of how we do communion are are, are less important. Not unimportant, but less important. So Different churches and traditions can disagree about whether it's wine or juice or whether it's leavened or unleavened bread or whether they do it weekly or monthly or 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 what quarterly or whatever so i think I think that those four things are helpful guardrails or uh, for us and but more than that, I think that these four things also guard us from the errors of either under spiritualizing the lord's Supper and over spiritualizing the lord's supper that's that's sort of my theory. But I want to test it. I want to test it by answering a question, okay? And the question really is one that comes up every every once in a while. It's the question of why, if at all, it's okay to include children at the Lord's table. And this is something that comes up every so often. If you've been with us for, for any amount of time, you know that children are allowed to participate in communion and benediction with their parents' permission. And there are people who think that that's a mistake, my experience has been in conversation with these folks that it comes down to a few untested assumptions. And so I wanted to, what I want to do as we, as we sort of wrap up is to take a few minutes and just address the objections, address the assumptions, so that you know exactly like why, where we're coming from on this. And so one of the objections to having children participating in communion has to do with baptism. And so the, the thought here is, is that, you know, as, as evangelicals, we only would we you know most most evangelicals baptize believers and like i totally get that and so the the argument goes 
only people who've been baptized should take communion. If we don't baptize children, then we shouldn't be serving them communion either. So I get the logic. And it, the problem isn't that it's not logical. The problem is that it's just not biblical. Okay. In, in other words, in, like in my judgment, that it's putting a fence around communion that scripture doesn't put. Okay. Baptism is a fence around communion that scripture doesn't give us. Now, let me ask this. Do like, do there exist Christians, genuine, like born again followers of Jesus who are not yet baptized? Is that like, is that a thing that exists? It is, right? Okay. Uh, do there also exist Christians, genuine born again believers who were baptized by some other mode than immersion in water as adult believers? Does that exist? Is that a thing? Yes, that, that is a thing too. And my point here is like, I'm all about baptism, but if we require baptism before you take communion, then we're saying your faith may be enough for you to participate in the Lord's church, like in Christ's universal church. It's not enough though for participation in the Lord's Supper in this church though. And if we're going to be consistent with that, we need to exclude not only unbaptized kids, but also every unbaptized adult believer and every adult believer who was baptized in some other way than immersion. And that seems to me like pretty awful table manners. I just don't think, I don't think scripture will allow that. And, and I'm, I just, and I, I won't go there either. So another objection about having kids in communion has to do with kids motivation. And the idea here is that kids only take communion because they see the rest of us doing that. Okay. And here my pushback would be, is this a kid thing? Or is it, is it a hypocrisy thing? Like in scripture, there are people who are, who are told that they shouldn't participate in communion. Like, like in Jude 12 says that there are these people called blasphemers and they are blemishes at your love feasts. And uh, just a few chapters ago in 1 Corinthians, Paul said, you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Now, like I, I fully believe that may apply to some kids at some times, maybe not the drunkard part. I think that that applies to some kids at some times, but I also think it applies to some adults at some times. So this isn't a kid thing. This is a sin thing. And let's not forget at the last supper, you know who else was there? Judas. Judas was at the last supper. He wasn't turned away from this thing, even though his heart was far from the Lord. So may, uh, let me ask this, quick show, by show of hands, how many of you have seen an, an adult turned away from communion by a pastor or an elder? Have, how many of you have seen that? I've seen it once, but not in evangelical tradition. It's super, super rare to have, uh, to have like an elder or pastor, whoever's like passing around the plates, say to another person, uh, no, I'm sorry, you, this is not for you. That, that's super, super rare. And, and, and the reason I say that is because here's what I know about doctrine, okay? At this, at this point in my ministry, I, what I, one of the things I know about doctrine is that your convictions about an issue are only as strong as your commitment to challenge your equals over it. All right, let me say that again. 
Your convictions about an issue are only as strong as your commitment to challenge your equals over that issue. And so it's easy to exclude kids because they're not going to defend themselves. They're not going to fight back. If you, and if we really care about hypocrisy, though, let's start with ourselves and let's not punish kids for being kids. And if we're, so, so, so like, if we're going to exclude children that we think are only going through the motions, but not adults who we think are only going through the motions, that's bad table manners. It's bad table manners. We're drawing a line where scripture doesn't. Okay, one more objection to kids in communion has to do with a kid's understanding. It's the assumption that kids can't understand Jesus. They can't appreciate him. And it seems to me Jesus spoke to this exact situation. Because in the Gospels, the kids wanted to be with Jesus. They didn't fully understand him. They just knew he's awesome. He's special. He loves them. He's fun. He listens to us. He pays attention to us. And the disciples rebuke the parents. And the disciples are like, hey, would you please could just get your kids under control? He's not, this is, he's not a climbing structure here. He's not your kid's fun uncle. This is the Messiah. This is the Lord of heaven and earth. And Jesus rebukes them, not the parents. He rebukes the disciples, not the kids. And so in Matthew 19, 15, Jesus says, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Now, by the way, we're not talking about adolescents here or teenagers or young adults. We're talking about little children. Little children. We're talking about Benny and Emmy and Zanna. Okay, we're talking about Daniel and Hannah and Roro and Huck. And, and, and the disciples assume that these kids are too young and they're too innocent. And they're too immature to truly get Jesus. And Jesus rebukes them and he's like, oh, yes, they do. The, the kingdom is theirs. Don't you stop them. That is countercultural. That is a countercultural message. Because a lot of us, we hear that and we're like, what do you mean the kingdom is theirs, Jesus? Like, what does that mean? You can't just go giving the bread and the cup to just anybody. They, they've got to they've earn it. They've got to deserve it. They've got to prove themselves. We can't just let anybody come and be with you. Jesus is like, that's exactly how this kingdom works. That's exactly how it is. My kingdom is a feast. It's a, it's a banquet. And there is room for everyone. Everybody who has been left out of the world's tables. Everyone who has been told that they don't belong. They are welcome at my table. They're invited and the way is open. And the world divides us over gender and race and age and language and body type and class, and education, and orientation, and politics. And Jesus says, not at my table. My table is different. At this table, all are welcome. Let the little children come. And for me, for these reasons, what I'd say to parents is, your kids might surprise you. If you're nervous about this, your kids might actually be ready sooner than we expect. And a true childlike faith in Jesus Christ might actually be there already sooner than you expected. And so I would encourage parents to be prepared to ask kids and to listen and say like, hey, do you remember why Jesus is so special? What do you think is going on when we do this thing with the bread and the cup? Like, because I know, I know that communion can be confusing, 
But, you know, just like you play house with toys and dolls, we get to play kingdom with bread and juice. And I would encourage parents to say, if you don't want to do this, if, if you don't want to participate, you don't have to. It's okay to just watch mom and dad until, you're, until you feel ready. But if you want to, that's enough. You can. And I, I really believe that it's that simple. I believe it's that simple. And what no kid needs, and no, no adult for that matter, is to have the path to Jesus blocked by man-made traditions and rules. That is bad table manners. And so I, if anybody, whether they are young or old, if a person has said yes to Christ, and Christ has said yes to them, we will not say no. Kids or adults who have faith in Jesus are welcome at the Lord's table. And, and these, are not just, these are not just our table manners. These are his. Let me close with this from Isaiah 25. The Lord says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine. Let me say that again. The Lord will prepare, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears of all faces. He will remove the people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.